Well, if you haven't done so already, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be the text that Sam read with the children, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And uh, you will remember that uh, in the very first section of this book, uh, verses 1 through 11, uh, Luke prepared us to to hear the, the story that he's going to tell, and this his second bomb, he, he prepared us to, to hear this story as the story of what Jesus continued to do and to teach after his ascension. The, the book of Luke, the, the gospel of Luke, was the story of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And now here in the book of Acts, we get the story of what he is continuing to do, not bodily because he is no longer here. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He now sits enthroned in heaven where he makes intercession for his people. But he continues to work. He, he continues to, to, to work for the glory of his Father and for the good of his people. And the verses before us this morning, we we see the very beginning of that story. As Sam said, we see Jesus shoring up the foundation of the church that he is going to build as these chapters unfold. And he is going to do that by choosing Matthias to take Judas's place. But to really understand the, the full significance of that choice and to understand why it was Jesus who had to make that choice, we need to follow the story as it unfolds. And it's going to unfold really for us in, in four scenes. We see the first one there in verses 12 through 14. As, as the apostles return to Jerusalem following the ascension, and they, they gather together in the upper room, we're, we're told that they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. That doesn't mean that, it was, uh, that the ascension took place on a Sabbath. It simply means that a Sabbath day's journey was how far the, the Pharisees said you could walk uh, on a Sabbath without violating the command to do no work. How long do you have to walk before it's work? Uh, well, they had a, a Sabbath day's journey, and, and they were about that far outside of Jerusalem when they uh, returned, and were told that they went to the upper room. And we don't know if this is the same upper room uh, where they had the Last Supper. We don't know if it's the same upper room that we'll read about later uh, in uh, the book of Acts, but, but they gather in this upper room, and we're told that the 11 disciples are there. All of them are named now in a slightly different order, uh, maybe representing some of the, the changes that had taken place in uh, the, the order of the, the disciples, but we still have all 11, as they were named earlier. Only Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, is missing. But not only are the 11 together, we're, we're told that the women are also with him. And that probably refers to the women who had been supporting Jesus' public ministry uh, all throughout uh, those three years. There were, there were women of means who, who paid for and financed Jesus' public ministry and financed the work that he and his, his disciples were, were doing. And they are there. Mary, his mother, is also there. And then his brothers, whether that's his, his literal, physical brothers, Mary's other children or not, uh, we don't know. We know that in the very next verse, verse 15, uh, the, the brothers is going to refer to not just his literal brothers, but to the whole congregation that his, has gathered, the 120 or so that were there. And so uh, there's, a, there's 120 that are, that are gathered together, and they are gathered together in Jerusalem to wait. After Jesus' ascension, after he, he goes from their presence in the glory cloud, 
They do not immediately rush out to, to proclaim the, 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 the good news of his resurrection and the good news of his ascension, but rather, even as he had commended them, they wait. They, they wait in Jerusalem, but they are not only waiting. We're told that they are waiting and devoting themselves to prayer. All these, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And it's significant that they, that they are praying in one accord. The, these are not individuals making individual requests to the Lord. They, they may have been praying together in a group. They may have been praying on their own. We don't know exactly the, the dynamics of, of what the, the prayer meeting looked like. But we know that they are praying with one voice. They are praying in, in one accord. These are, these are not individual requests, but, but corporate requests. They are, they are praying kingdom prayers. Prayers that have the, 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 the whole work of Christ in mind. And almost certainly what they are praying for is that God would pour out the gift that He had promised. Remember, that's why Jesus had told them to wait. He had told them to wait until they received the gift of the Father, until the Holy Spirit was poured out. And so now we see the disciples waiting and, and praying and pleading with God to do what He had promised to do, to pour out the Spirit that they might begin the work that they had been given to do. And they are praying fervently. They, they are devoting themselves to prayer. That, that, that fervency, that, that, that devotion, it suggests to us something of their, their eager desire to do this work. They had seen Jesus alive. They were eager to, to bear witness to their risen Lord. And yet, and yet they also were keenly aware of their own weaknesses. They, they were keenly aware of their own desperate need. And so rather than, than running ahead... They waited. They waited for the gift that Jesus told them they so desperately needed. They, they waited for the outpouring of the Spirit. And this is where Jesus' work begins. This work that, that Jesus is going to do begins with His disciples gathered together in fervent prayer. Devoting themselves to, to praying for the work of the kingdom. And I think there is an important lesson in that for us, even today. Now, we are not in the same position that those first disciples were in. They, they were praying for the initial outpouring of the Spirit. This is still before Pentecost. We'll, we'll get to that next week. But the Spirit had not yet been poured out on the church as it would be at, at, at Pentecost. And they, were, they were praying for that, that initial gifting. We have the Spirit. The, the outpouring at, at Pentecost was a, a once-for-all-time event when the Spirit was given to the church. And so that we can now, so that Paul can now say with great confidence that if you have believed the gospel, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit. Because we live this side of Pentecost, we have the Spirit with us. And so we are not praying as they were for the outpouring of the Spirit, but we are praying 
That we might be filled with the Spirit. You see, Paul draws that distinction in his letter to the Ephesians, writing to those Spirit-filled Christians whom he had had promised had been sealed with the Spirit. He still commands them to be filled with the Spirit in the course of their daily lives. Because as he says to the Galatians, all Christians have the Spirit, but not all Christians keep in step with the Spirit. Not all Christians constantly walk by the Spirit. And if we would be used by Christ to do the work that He is doing, if we would be fit tools in His hands, then we need to be filled with the Spirit daily that we might do the work that He has given us to do. And so as Christians today, though we have the Spirit, though we have been sealed with the Spirit, we continue to pray daily for the filling of the Spirit, that we might be tools in our Savior's hands, that whatever it is He is doing, we might take part in that great work. And so this is where Jesus' continuing work begins. It begins with His people waiting for the Lord, waiting to be filled with the Spirit for the works which He has prepared for us to do. But of course, the story doesn't end there. Even as they are gathered in prayer, Peter realizes that they have something to do. He he realizes that, that Judas needs to be replaced. This is really the second scene there in verses 15 through 20. As they are praying in those days, those those days between Ascension and Pentecost, Peter realizes first that it was necessary for Judas to betray Jesus. You can imagine how, how confusing that must have been to the disciples. How confusing it was that that one of their brothers, one of their own, had betrayed the Lord and then had killed himself. You you can only imagine how, how confusing that must have been. But as they are gathered together in prayer and as they are meditating upon the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit opens Peter's eyes to see that this was actually part of God's plan. And not only does the Jew, not only was it necessary that Judas betray Jesus, but it is also necessary that he now be replaced. So let's, let's think about both of those. First, first, it was necessary that Judas betray Jesus. What do we, what do we mean by necessary? I mean, look at the way that, that Peter says it. He says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. It was, it was necessary. It was necessary because God had said it was going to happen. God had prophesied it. He he had said beforehand that this is how things are going to unfold. Now sometimes we we think like Greeks, and we we think like the the ancient Greeks in the terms that if God has said it's going to happen, then therefore it was fated. And therefore man has no responsibility. In fact, like like Oedipus, they can do everything in their power to, to escape their fate, and yet it's still going to overcome them. That is not at all the Christian idea of God's sovereignty. You've heard me say so many times, but it is a mystery. It is is a mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. But we must understand that God's sovereignty never negates human responsibility. Peter is not saying that the Scripture had to be fulfilled in order to make an excuse for Judas. 
Judas is in in no way excused for his betrayal. He was a a, a moral agent who made real choices, and he was responsible for the choices that he made. And yet, the free choices that he made were a part of God's sovereign plan. They were part of what God determined would come to pass. And that matters. It matters for us to see that, that, that this, was, this was not a detour. This, this was not something that God didn't expect. This was, this was not a, an obstacle in his way that he, that he had to overcome. As, as finite human beings, we often find ourselves in the position where, where we are trying to make the best of a bad situation, where, where something we didn't plan on uh, unfolds, and then now we have to, to see what we're going to do about it, how we're going to respond. But it would be a grave error to imagine that, that God ever finds himself in that sort of situation. God is, is never trying to react to something that he didn't expect, that he didn't foresee, that he, that he was outside of his sovereign control. He, he's never left trying to make the best of a bad situation. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. God's plan is unfolding perfectly. And in the, the mystery of his sovereignty, even our own rebellions and sins, even Judas's betrayal of the anointed one, is part of that plan that God is working together for the good of His people and for the glory of His name. And so while Judas is is in no way excused, we can have confidence that nothing has transpired that might threaten His plan, that nothing has has come to pass that, that might undo His purposes. And if that is true in this instance, if that is is true here, as as we see that that even Judas' betrayal was part of God's unfolding plan, then we can have confidence in all circumstances. We we can have confidence even in the midst of of unknown circumstances, even, even when we are confused, even when we are bewildered. We can rest assured that God is working all things according to the counsel of His will for the good of those who love Him. Because He is working all things together for the salvation of those whom Christ came to save, those whom Christ gave His life to redeem. And so it was necessary for Judas to betray Jesus because it was part of the plan. But it was also necessary for Judas to be replaced. Now before I get to that, I just, I just want to sort of take a, a parenthesis here because Luke puts a parenthesis right in the middle of the text and I, I think we need to, to deal with it. You know, before we, we get to this idea that, that Judas needed to be replaced, Luke gives us this parenthesis in verses 18 and, and 19. And the, the, the parenthesis by itself actually uh, is a little bit of an obstacle. It's a little bit of an obstacle because, because Luke is telling us how Judas died. He, he says, now this man acquired a field with uh, the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is the field of blood. 
And that by itself is not problematic. What, what's problematic is that this account differs in significant ways from what Matthew tells us. There are, there are at least three differences, or at least apparent differences, between what Luke tells us and what Matthew tells us about the, the end of Judas' life. First, how did Judas die? Matthew tells us that he hanged himself. In his great remorse, but unrepentant remorse, he took his own life, where Luke tells us that he fell headlong, whatever that means. Sounds like he fell off a cliff. And then who purchased the blood? Who purchased this field where he died? Again, what does Luke tell us? Luke tells us that this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. But Matthew tells us that the money was actually returned to the priest, and the priests bought the field. And then why was the field called the field of blood? Is it because of the, the grisly death that Judas died, as Luke suggests? Or is it because it was bought with blood money, as Matthew tells us? There are difficulties here, difficulties of, of reconciliation. How do, we, how do we bring these two stories together. This is a place where uh, critics and agnostics and opponents of the faith will, will try to make much headway. They, they point to texts like this and they say, see, your scriptures cannot be trusted. So let me suggest to you that what we do with these differences actually reveals more about us than anything else. It reveals more about the presuppositions with which we bring to the Bible. If you have two friends whom you trust, who, who you believe to, to be reliable and, and honorable people, and they, and they both give you an account of the same event and their details don't exactly match up, your mind immediately begins to, to ask, how can those be reconciled? But if you are suspicious and, and if you already distrust, you will immediately jump to the conclusion that one or both of them is lying. And you will point out, you will latch on to the ways that the stories contradict. I can't tell you exactly how to reconcile these differences. There are all kinds of theories out there that, that make sense. But if you believe that this is God's word, if you believe that both Matthew and, and Luke are, are reliable witnesses writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then you will assume that their stories can be brought together. And you will understand that it is possible for one who has hanged himself to, to fall headlong. That those are not mutually exclusive possibilities. You will understand that it, that it is Judas's money who bought the blood because the priest wouldn't actually receive it. They bought it on Judas's behalf. They, they wouldn't take the money back into the official treasuries. And so the priest didn't buy the field. Judas did. And you will understand that a field can acquire a name in, uh, in a city like Jerusalem. And it can be known as the field of blood for more than one reason. That's not contradictory to say that some referred to it as the field of blood because it was bought with blood money, while others referred to it as the field of blood because Judas died a grisly death there. We don't know exactly how to uh, resolve all of the issues, but, but the fact that there are issues, rather than undermining your faith in the Scriptures, 
should actually strengthen it. Because what happens when witnesses get together to tell a lie? What happens when, when witnesses get together to, to try to deceive the public and, and lead them to their desired narrative? Well, what happens is they get their story straight. They get their story right. And the early church recognized these differences and they didn't try to fix them. They, they, didn't, they didn't try to, to reconcile them. They, they let them stand. They, they didn't act like witnesses trying to get their story straight. They act like witnesses telling the story of what they had seen and of what they knew had actually taken place. And so rather than allowing these difficulties to undermine your faith in the Scripture, the fact that the early church allowed these difficulties to stand should give you confidence that they were not massaging the truth. They, they were not creating a narrative. But they were exactly what Scripture says they were. They were witnesses. They were witnesses to all that Jesus had done, and now witnesses to all that Jesus is continuing to do. And what is it that he's continuing to do? Well, let's get back to the story. The first thing that he is doing is, is choosing a replacement for Judas, the one who betrayed him, the one who, who died in the field. And the reason that, that they are choosing that replacement is because Peter's eyes have been opened to the fact that he needs to be replaced. It wasn't only necessary that Judas betray Jesus. It was necessary that, that Jesus choose Judas' replacement. We, we see this, or Peter sees this in, in Psalm 109 when he, when he reads that, that another should take his place. If you go and look at Psalm 109, you will see that, that this is a, a psalm of imprecation. This is a, a psalm of, of cursing. It is a curse pronounced against the one who has betrayed the Lord's anointed without cause. And as Peter reads those psalms, as Jesus had taught the disciples to read the Old Testament, as, as if all of it was pointing to him and reaching its, its fulfillment in him, as they, as they read these psalms with new Christological eyes, as they read these psalms as, as the fulfillment, as, as the, that which is fulfilled in Christ, Peter begins to see that not only was it necessary that Jesus be betrayed, but that someone ought to take the betrayer's place. But why? Why was, it, why was it so important that this betrayer be replaced? Well, at least in part, it's what Sam was saying to the kids this morning. If you have a foundation with a missing stone, it's not a very sure foundation. And the apostles that Jesus had chosen for himself were the foundation upon which he intended to build his church. Jesus himself said that at the, at the very beginning when, when Peter first confessed him to be the Christ. He said, upon this rock, the rock of your testimony, the rock of your witness to who I am, upon this rock, I will build my church. And that is confirmed by Paul in his letters when, when he says that, that Jesus has built his church upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone, but the apostles and the prophets, those whom he chose to be his witnesses, those whom he chose to, to, to be his authoritative spokesman, 
They are the foundation upon which the church is built. And a foundation cannot have missing stones. A foundation must be secure. And so so at at the very least, so that the testimony of the apostles might be complete, it is necessary that Judas be replaced. But I think it's more than just the need for a a complete foundation. Because I think that it it is likely that the number 12 is important. It is likely that that it is important that there be 12 apostles, just as there were 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes. The the parallel is intentional. We we see this as it's picked up later in the the book of Revelation when we're we're told that the 12 gates and the 12 walls have on them the, the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Scripture ties these two together. But but why? What is the significance of there being 12 apostles? Jesus wants us to see that it is in the church. It is in the church built upon the foundation of the 12 apostles that all of the promises made to the 12 sons of Israel are going to be fulfilled. It's not that the, the church replaces Israel. It's that the church is Israel. The church is the fulfillment of all that God had said that he was going to do. So that again, Paul can say as clearly as he can say it, if you are in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. Or as he says it in his letter to the Romans, all those who are in Christ have now been woven into the one olive tree. Does God have a plan for the ethnic Jews in the the future? I don't know. Many believe that He does. Many believe that there is coming a day when we will see a a great conversion among those who, who physically descend from Abraham. And I pray that that is true. But let me tell you that if we see a conversion among the Jews, the the result will be not that there is a second tree, but that they are woven back into the one tree. They will become members of the church. The church, the, the one people of God. Because it is here in the church, it is those who are in Christ who receive the fulfillment of all that God has promised to do. And that, again, matters. It matters because it reminds us that the church is not God's plan B. God is not, again, trying to make the best of a bad situation. But He is bringing to fulfillment the full glory of all that He always intended to do. And He is doing it in the church. The church that He is building upon the foundation of the apostles. But again, it's not the apostles as as individuals, but it's the apostles as witnesses. Because Jesus is the cornerstone. And that brings us to this third scene. This third scene where the the qualifications for the the one who might replace Judas are actually set forth in, in verses 21 and 22. It's not just that Judas needs to be replaced, but he needs to be replaced with a witness. He needs to be replaced with one who was with him from the beginning, from from John's baptism all the way to the ascension, all the way to his 
to the end of his public ministry. And the reason that they, he had to be with them is because he, they, this apostle is called to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection, a witness to to his victory over sin and death. And so he needs to be able to say that the one that we were with for three years is the same one who has now risen again. He is a witness who is qualified to, to say, yes, this is Jesus. And so they set forth these two who, who meet the requirements. We don't know if they were the only ones in the group that, that met the requirements. It's, it's possible. If you're having to go all the way back to, to Jesus' first, uh, to, to the beginnings of Jesus' ministry, it's, it's possible that there were only two early adopters in the crowd. There, there, there may have been others. We don't know. But, but, but these two at least are identified as those who are qualified. But I want you to notice that having having recognize that the need for one who can bear witness to the resurrection. They do not presume to make the choice themselves. The, the candidates are identified, but then they put the choice to Jesus. They, they pray to the Lord. They pray to Jesus himself, and they ask him to make the choice by means of Lot. A lot is just like a, a die, something cast to, uh, that is seemingly random by which God can make his will known. Now there are some who, who read this text and think, oh, well, this is how I ought to make all my big decisions. You know, I, I, ought not to, I ought to always put it in Jesus' hand. I ought to always just roll the dice and let him decide what school I go to or what, what, uh, um, what I study or who I marry or what job I take. Please don't do that. This is, this is not a picture of, of how we are to, to face normal decisions. This is, this is not a picture of how we are to, to, to always decide the will of God. God calls us to, to use spiritual wisdom in the course of our lives. He, he calls us to, to be filled with the knowledge of His will. That is a knowledge of what He commands, a, a knowledge of, of His law. And then he requires us to to use spiritually given wisdom to apply that law to the particulars of our situation and to make the best choice that we can. To to seek his glory in this situation according to the wisdom that he supplies. That is the the normal way that, that Christians are to go about making decisions. They are not normally to roll the dice. But if Christians are normally... to to use spiritual wisdom, what's going on here? Why do they they cast lots in this particular situation? And I would suggest to you that they are casting lots here because this is not a choice that the church is supposed to make. This is not a choice that any individual Christian is supposed to make. Jesus himself must appoint his apostles. Because an apostle is one who is authorized by Jesus to speak with Jesus' authority. And so Jesus alone has the authority to designate whom he will call apostles. And so the church cannot presume to to make the best choice it thinks. It does that with elders. We we select our own elders. We we select our own deacons. We, we, We receive the gifts that he has given us with spiritual wisdom. But we can't do that with apostles because apostles are different. They are the foundation stones. 
They speak with the very authority of Jesus himself. And so Jesus himself makes the choice. Jesus himself chooses Matthias to be Judas's replacement. And again, that matters. It matters because it, the need for Jesus to make the choice reminds us that the church must be apostolic. And that is something we need to hear in this day. This day when, when everybody wants to do Christianity their own way, when everybody wants to interpret the gospel their own way, when, when everybody wants to worship God on their own terms. We need to remember that the church is built upon the foundation that Jesus himself laid, and there is no other foundation. The church must receive the apostolic gospel. The church must cling to the apostolic gospel. The church, even as we're going to see in the next chapter, must devote itself to the apostolic gospel. The church must be apostolic. It cannot be built anywhere else. Jesus, uh, the foundation that Jesus has laid is the alone rock upon which the church stands. All other ground is sinking sand. So the church must be apostolic, but there's not only a requirement here, there is also a promise. And the promise is simply this. That if Jesus has determined to build his church upon the foundation of the apostolic gospel, then we can know that if we cling to that apostolic gospel, God, Jesus will build his church. We, we see it throughout the whole book. The word of God, this, this word of the apostles, it continues to grow. Jesus uses it to build his church. And so, in this, again, difficult time, this, this difficult season, when churches are, are wondering if they are going to be able to make it, when churches are wondering if they're ever going to be able to come back, if, if churches are wondering if they're going to have to close their doors, we need to remember and we need to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we don't need some secret new strategy. We simply need to continue to cling to the apostolic gospel. Because if we stand here, Jesus will build His church. Because Jesus is the one who does it. And Jesus is not going to be deterred from his purposes by a pandemic. Jesus is not going to be deterred from his purposes by any human obstacle. He sits upon the throne and he is subduing his enemies to his feet. And his kingdom will be established. And it will be established through his apostolic Word. And because Jesus will do this work, because he will give the growth, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your Son, whom you did not spare, but put forward as the sacrifice for our sins. And we thank you that he now sits enthroned at your right hand, ruling all things for the church. Father, may we rest confident in his sovereign rule as he works all things together for the glory of your name and the good of his people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.